This is Truth Talks. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. Can you tell that I haven't been doing this, you know, just for a few months, that I make those type of mistakes? And no, I'm not going to take it out because I am a human being and I am uh, prone to make mistakes. And that's okay. Just like you, you do. Right. Like today, you made a mistake. You had to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Welcome back to the Truth Talks podcast. This is I'm your host, Buddy Boone. With me today is the pastor of Bellcroft Bible Church. His name is Pastor Matt White. How you doing today, sir? Oh, I am blessed, brother, to be alive and to be here with you to talk about the truth. Awesome. Yeah, and uh, there are a few things that um, we need to talk about, um, especially because you have uh, made some statements that uh, had the church in a little bit of an uproar. <laughs> yeah, just a small, a small uh, right. uproar. Yeah, the not sure what that it's about. Yeah, and we, <laughs> we need to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, and and obviously, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you say something that is uh, uh, the great the the only word that I could think of is provocative, but yeah. provocative in the way it's you know provoking us to think and to sure. study and ask more questions. So that's the good type. So okay, so. Sunday mm. uh, that just passed, you said you're preaching on divorce mm. and you said something that kind of sparked some attention. Mm. And that thing was that God was a divorcee. Mm. And I need you to talk more about that. <laughs> I need you to kind of give me some understanding of of how that works. And, yeah. you know, obviously <clears throat> some some biblical understanding of that sure um because sure. that is not something that's kind of like you just walked into the room you set a firecracker in the middle of the room and you just walked out <laughs> <laughs> well that's not what i did for those who are listening because that would not be uh shall i say uh that would not be right to do that nor would it be faithful in a pulpit but obviously i was preaching on marriage out of mark 10 uh preaching on marriage and obviously divorce out of mark 10 verses 10 to 12 those three verses where jesus christ is privately instructing his uh disciples about not only the priority of marriage but also uh the reality of divorce and and what happens when a when a man or a when a husband or a wife divorces their spouse um in the broader context in a in a in an unacceptable manner meaning not according to scripture then they uh and then they remarry they commit adultery and so it's a pretty serious passage mm -hmm. dealing with a very confusing subject for most people uh marriage and divorce is sadly uh very confusing mm -hmm. it's a sad subject obviously because um all the uh difficulty and sin and everything that gets brought to the table whenever divorce happens right um so yeah so I made a statement in light of the sermon. The first part of uh, verse 11 really highlights the the provocative nature of biblical marriage. So in that text, rather than focus on the negative side of divorce, I, I decided to focus, continue to focus, as I have been through that passage, on the positive side, i.e. biblical marriage, which is what Christ promotes to the Pharisees who bring their man-centered view of marriage in talking about 
uh, how a man can divorce his wife for anything and why Moses uh, wrote the certificate of divorce or permitted them. And uh, they're coming at it from a man-centered perspective that said a man could divorce his wife for anything. Christ turns around on them and brings the God-centered perspective on marriage and explains how uh, God designed marriage from the beginning to be permanent. And, uh, and so Christ just lays that out very clearly, and it's awesome. And then his disciples are so uh, in awe of the God-centered view of marriage that they are still wrestling with it because it's so foreign to them because they were raised in that culture and even believed in more of a man-centered view of marriage where it was a throwaway item, mm-hmm. where it was a disposable agreement. And, you know, if a man wanted to divorce his wife for virtually any, any reason, he could. And so when Jesus throws the gauntlet down and says, absolutely not, that was not God's design from the beginning. He designed marriage to be permanent, lifelong, between a man and a woman for life. And he lays that out, and he goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and explains this is part of the creation mandate. It's unchanging all the way back then, thousands of years ago. It hasn't changed up to the point when he was speaking to the Pharisees and then by implication his disciples. So they're confused. They're just like, uh, wow, they're blown away. I mean, you talk about provocative. That's the whole point. Jesus mm-hmm. threw out the firecracker right. when he said that. And and you can see they're... they're uh, they were provoked because in Matthew 19, the cor- correlating passage, um, they asked Jesus, they're like, if this is the way God intended marriage to be, then it's better for nobody to marry. Hmm. That's their that's their response. How sad is that? Yeah. Right? Their, their, their view of marriage was clearly shallow, was not theologically deep, rich, true. Um, but they did understand what Jesus was saying, that he held a high view of marriage, and that this whole idea of divorce was not God's idea. He did not institute it, and um, he allowed it for the purpose of regulating divorce because, as Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 shows, divorce had become so rampant by the time uh, the law is given at Sinai that uh, God then allows or permits divorce to continue because of the hardness of man's heart, because of his wickedness and his selfishness, in order that he might regulate the practice to keep it from getting even further out of hand. And that's that's why Jesus makes it clear Moses made a concession, not necessarily a command. And so uh, Jesus makes that clear, and then, of course, his disciples are like just, just totally... Uh, in awe of what Christ says. And so then he goes on and he says, listen, a man divorces his wife and and his wife marries another. She commits adultery. So he commits adultery against her. He, he makes her commit adultery mm-hmm. and vice versa for the wife. And they're just like, whoa. So that's the context. So then I'm preaching on this and explaining the provocative nature of a biblical marriage. It will provoke. It will provoke uh, your children, it will provoke everyone around you because it stands countercultural. It stands contrary to everything. Very much. Hence the disciples' response, right? And that's the, that's pretty much a normal response when you see a biblical marriage in our day. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at the reality of 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 the uh, the purifying nature of a biblical marriage. So a biblical marriage is permanent. It's lifelong. It it doesn't seek divorce and. So we looked at those, the reality of divorce, and so I started to explain what divorce is and all of that, and that's where that comment that you threw out 
as a as a firecracker came from. So right. it was do, during that discussion, as I'm explaining divorce, I walked through and said how God hates divorce, which I've said pretty much every Sunday. I explained that again, that God hates divorce, makes that clear in Malachi 2, as well as other impl- implied in other passages very clearly. He hates divorce. I explained why he hates divorce, what divorce does uh, in denigrating his glory, denigrating his gospel, denigrating his design. Uh, walk that through, of course, and then the, the negative consequences and and catastrophe it brings upon man, woman, family, children, community, church. I mean, divorce just just literally lays out a, a you want to talk about a, an infection like gangrene. Mm-hmm. Once it goes out, it it's the ripple that doesn't just impact the husband or the wife or the children, but it impacts the whole family, the whole community, even the church. Every Everybody that's interconnected gets negatively impacted whenever any divorce happens. The ramifications of just one divorce are so widespread, it's hard to even conceptualize it. That's how big it is. And it goes on, right? Generations. Because now those children that come out of that out of that reality are so prone and so programmed to think in that direction of of a man-centered view of marriage by which marriage becomes a a disposable agreement mm-hmm. rather than a permanent covenant. And so you it's hard to even tell how damaging divorce is even historically, mm-hmm. generationally. And so obviously there's multiple reasons that the scripture lines out that why God hates divorce. So we talked about that. And then uh, and then we looked at uh, the the reality of 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 what divorce is and the breaking of the covenant and all of that. And then I, I explained or I asked the question, is divorce always sinful? And obviously it's a question meant to provoke thought and contemplation. Um, and the simple answer to that is no, it is not always sinful. Yet every divorce involves sin, right? Divorce doesn't happen without sin. And so God hates divorce. But he doesn't necessarily hate every divorce, and that's a that's a that's a truth you got to wrestle with in Scripture, right? He hates what causes every divorce, but he doesn't necessarily hate every divorce. Meaning, in the sense of every divorce is sinful, right? Um, and you see that in Scripture, um, and so one of the one of the uh, ways you can see that is that God Himself divorced Israel. And again, something not readily known to many people um, is that reality that God himself wrote a certificate of divorce and gave it to Israel. Mm. And so he divorced them, hence he's a divorcee in that, in that theological sense. And he says that and comes up multiple times in Scripture. And so, uh, so uh, I walk through the fact that what does Scripture say, and how does Scripture describe Joseph in Matthew one nineteen? Joseph is described as a just man, meaning meaning he does what's right. And in the same sentence, Joseph, being a just man, decided to divorce Mary quietly. Okay, think about that. He's described as a man who does what is right, and in the same sentence, not 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 different sentence, same sentence, it says. He's going to divorce Mary quietly, i.e. he's going to do it respectfully because Mary is now pregnant. They're betrothed, mm-hmm. and in that 
culture, the betrothal was as if you were married. But mm -hmm. the only thing that hadn't happened yet was sexual relations. They mm -hmm. hadn't consummated the marriage, so to speak. But everything else was done. They were they were they were totally everyone knew they were they were getting married, they were going to be married. It's as if they were married and that's the way it, it worked in that culture. So, uh, for him to break off the betrothal, he had to essentially officially divorce her. And um and the text never looks down upon that like he was doing something wrong. Holy Spirit he speaks obviously sends Gabriel and Gabriel says what no don't 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 do that mm -hmm. and he doesn't say don't do that because it's wrong he says don't do that and he explains why because the child within her is conceived not immorally mm -hmm. not through immorality adultery but through the Holy Spirit right right and so so you see right there a clear reality that um, there's a divorce that's going to happen and it wasn't necessarily frowned upon but it didn't need to happen because what the miracle of the of the conception of Christ obviously so but then if you go over to Ezra chapters 9 and 10 there's a passage there two chapters specifically in 10 but it builds up in 9 where something happened that is earth-shattering if you understand how much God hates divorce and what it does well there you have the exiles Israel coming back out of Babylon and and obviously they're a mess, and um, you know Judah specifically coming out of Babylon, and uh, what had they done? Well, they had intermarried, they had they had essentially divorced, gotten rid of their Jewish wives and married pagan wives, right? Babylonian women and and mm -hmm. pagan women, and many of them even had children by these women. So you've got just this messed up, mixed intermarriage going on with God's people and, and pagan people. Hmm. And uh, these are to be the holy, holy, set you know. Apart. Yeah, holy set apart and commanded not to do that. Right. The law commanded them not mm -hmm. to do that. And um, so so what what are they to do, right? As Ezra the priest, a holy, godly man um, in the scriptures, you know, how are they going to deal with this as the law is now starting to be read and understood and they realize you know we're in the wrong how do we make this right well what what does he tell them to do divorce your wives and get back with your your jewish wives mm -hmm. and that's what they did and it pleased the lord mm -hmm. and so think about that i that's mean crazy that yeah. is that will blow your mind mm -hmm. and it's it's even in some ways hard for us to wrap our hands around that obviously again there's sin involved there, right? All mm -hmm. kinds of sin of them rejecting God and embracing immorality and, and debauchery on who knows how many levels. And then what's so wicked about it is is the Bible was clear that why they weren't to marry foreign wives wasn't because uh, wasn't because the they were better, you know, like it was some sort of racism, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with races because mm -hmm. we know the Bible says there's only one race, but right. but it wasn't because of that. Like that's what people think, mm -hmm. right? No, is the Bible says very clearly that if you if you marry foreign wives, they will take you away from Yahweh, and it happened. That's what da happened it to happened. David. It happened to Solomon. It happened Samson. Samson every mm -hmm. time, and he God said, "This is what's going to happen because they're pagan. They're they worship idols, mm -hmm. and they're going to pull you away." Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And so you can see the wickedness that was involved in that, and of course, generational then, because now you're having children that are going to follow this and see this, and 
it just awful. And um, so, so when you wrestle with this, you realize, oh wow, divorce is awful. It doesn't <clears throat> that doesn't take away the the sick nature of it and the sad nature of it. Yet you realize there are times in which in Scripture divorce was permitted, that divorce happened, that divorce needed to happen. And uh, obviously, you know, in, in that case, you can even see the lesser of two evils, right? Mm-hmm. Divorce is wrong, and yet having a marriage like this in that context is worse. And so you can see that taking over. And so when you start throwing all divorce out the window, like the baby in the bathwater, and saying it's all sinful, meaning God would never allow it, then you got to wrestle with Scripture, because now we're back at Jeremiah 3, where Jeremiah speaks clearly about God himself divorcing Israel, writing them a certificate of divorce. So the minute you say all divorce is sinful, now you have to say that God has sinned. Hmm. You can't say that Mm -hmm. because the Bible says emphatically God never sins. He can't sin. He never sins. And but the text says he wrote them a certificate of divorce. Yeah. So you see the reality and and the reason why it's important. Obviously, these are these are exceptions, right? These are not normal, right? Whether it's Joseph, I mean, you're dealing with uh, the Holy Spirit con- conception with Mary and and Christ and all of that. So obviously, that's miraculous. And obviously, what happened in Ezra ten and the exiles—that's not normal. And clearly, here with what God's doing with Israel. So we're looking at things in Scripture that are not, in some ways, in the norm, right? right? We're not going to be dealing with this. So. Um, yet at the same time, what we're talking about is our God and having a right view of him mm-hmm. and having a right view, obviously, of this issue of divorce. So that is why I said that, is to provoke and make people think. And, of course, I explained it and uh, help people think that through so that they know. Because here's the issue. We live in a culture in the modern church where the pendulum is on one or two sides of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Either, Either it's no divorce ever, where it's it's marriage and no divorce, and there should be no divorce. Mm-hmm. I'm, I made I've made that clear many times for believers. There is there is no divorce option, right? Mm-hmm. Because because the only way that you would ever divorce as believers is if you're living in sin, and mm-hmm. believers are clearly commanded never to live in sin. Mm-hmm. So by that, there's no divorce option. Period. Right. So I get that, but but in the church, there's one or two options. There, there is the reality of divorce is not a big deal, and it's just the culture. This is what we do. We make light of it. Marriage isn't a big deal. It's a throwaway item. It's a man-centered deal. Don't worry about divorce. You know, kumbaya, get divorced, go married. So there's this taking marriage very lightly, and divorce is no big deal. That's one side of the spectrum where most churches actually would fall. Whether they would say that or not, you can tell it by the lack of church discipline and the lack of these, uh, uh, shall I say, taking marriage serious and all of that. But the other side of the spectrum, which usually responds to that in swinging the pendulum to the other side, is to say that there is absolutely no place where divorce is ever allowed and that divorce is the unpardonable sin. Now, now Now we're getting into a whole arena that is just... Uh, shall I say, scary, right? Now, divorce is the unpardonable sin. Now, here's what's interesting. While there's some people that would say that, the majority of people who swing the pendulum out here to where divorce is the evil of all evils, 
would never say that. They would never say divorce is the unpardonable sin, but they will treat every divorced person as if it right. is. Mm -hmm. So so whether they s verbalize that or not, they live it out. Yeah. And it's the scarlet letter, mm -hmm. right, in the church is the D. And mm -hmm. you walk around with that, and, and people have to deal with the shame and, and the guilt forever, even though they've repented in dust and ashes and gnashing of teeth. And it's mm -hmm. like people still don't forgive them, and it's unbelievable because it's the unforgivable sin. Well, obviously, that's not biblically accurate because in the passage on the unforgivable sin, Jesus Christ said all sin will be forgiven, right, mm -hmm. except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't hear anything about divorce in there, right? right? Didn't even come up nowhere mm -hmm. in the context. So so the problem with the church is it's some, it tends to be somewhere on those polar opposites. And if you follow Scripture biblically, you should be somewhere in the middle there where you take marriage serious and you follow scripture seriously. And marriage was intended by God from the beginning to be a permanent, lifelong covenant, unbreakable between a man and a woman. And you hold that high and you protect that. And Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is to be protected. I love it. Hebrews 13, 4, by all, not just by married people, mm -hmm. but it is to be protected by all. Marriage is massive in the plan of God. It, he loves marriage. He designed marriage ultimately to be a picture of the gospel. And so the church needs to protect that, needs to preserve that, needs to fight against divorce mm -hmm. at all costs. Yet the church has to have a biblical understanding that God very clearly in Scripture has given uh, multiple exceptions for divorce. Ongoing, unrepentant immorality, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, except for immorality. Mm -hmm. If a man div divorces his wife, except for immorality, right? I mean, he just, there's, there it is. Yeah. There's no, there's no confusion about that. Mm -hmm. It's all kinds of people that try to make that, you know, make nuances to that and say, well, that was during bet betrothal and Joseph shows us that and it was during the betrothal period. If that's what he found, then. Yeah, well, that's not what the text says, mm -hmm. <laughs> not at all. And so you got to do a lot of uh, gymnastics to make that say anything other than what it clearly says. Mm -hmm. The question, you know, is, and he even uses the broad term, uh, pornea, for immorality, which is mm -hmm. a broader term dealing with sexual sin, mm -hmm. right? And so, but, but what's interesting about that, again, a high view of marriage understands that divorce nowhere in Scripture, and I, I gave, what, 15 verses at least probably more than that because where where yeah. where where divorce comes up old testament and new mm -hmm. testament we have i mean there's a whole chapter right in the new Testament. first corinthians 7 is pretty mm -hmm. much marriage and divorce the whole chapter yeah so we we have a lot about it not as much as we would like but all that we need obviously scripture is sufficient so we have more than we realize we just need to understand the text accurately and then embrace it humbly and so we have to understand what the scripture says and so clearly in that broad term of sexual morality but it never says this is my point i was wanting to make a minute ago the scripture never once nowhere does it command a man or a woman to divorce there's no command to divorce. Again, it was a concession. It was a, it was a point of regulation. It was, as the text says in Mark 10, a per permission. It was permitted. 
under these circumstances because man's heart was hard. He was Mm -hmm. living in sin, and it was a point of regulation. So what's interesting is even if a marriage is marked by pornea because of one spouse or the other, that other spouse is not demanded. It's not demanded of them that they divorce. It's not commanded. And again, what does that do? It elevates the high view of marriage. That marriage can be saved. That marriage can be restored. Mm -hmm. That marriage, that person can be forgiven if true repentance is there and all of that. So again, that's a biblical view. So we shouldn't be rushing off into divorce no matter, you know, if there's even sexual immorality. That's why I said a minute ago, it should be ongoing, unrepentant, clear sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so... We talked some about that. And then the other exception that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 is the abandonment, right? The abandonment of an un, the abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. So if you're married to an unbeliever, uh, you know, likelihood you were both unbelievers and you get saved and the other person's not saved and through your life together, you're, uh, for whatever reason, they want to leave. They want a divorce. Paul's very clear. He says, let them go. It's about as close to commanding divorce as you get. Yeah. His command is don't stop the divorce, mm-hmm. right? He His command is not start the divorce. He doesn't say that. He says, let him go. Mm-hmm. Just let him go. And so it's very important that we see that. Again, if you say all divorce is sinful, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Like, what do, you, what do you do with that? And what do you do with Matthew 19, Matthew 5, and 1 Corinthians 7? So um, I we just have to think clearly about it. It's not as... It's for for lack of a better word, it's not as black and white as we would like it to be, mm-hmm. right? As so many times, it's black and white in God's design. There is no divorce, mm-hmm. right? Genesis one and two, very clear. What God has joined together, let no man, let no man tear apart, mm-hmm. separate, right? The fact that God says let no man separate further points to the fact that it can be separated, right? Right? You know, that's right. a point not often. By man. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. often not understood. You know, God gives that warning. It's a warning. Mm-hmm. Don't mess with what God created. Don't tear it apart. And the point is, you can tear it apart. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. And of course, the warning makes no sense if it can't be torn apart. But anyway, so the point that just needs to be made is that was brought up that day that, you know, obviously did what it was supposed to do. It made people think is that divorce is not, is not as easy as you may think. It's clear in scripture. It's just not what we like. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then we have to understand that there are realities where divorce, uh, it, it happens, right? Whether you like it or not, it happens. We live in a sin cursed world. Right, sin makes everything messy. Mm-hmm. It always does. It clouds that which is clear, especially when it comes to things that God has designed. And so, sooner or later, you have to figure it out. Like you've got to, you got to, you got to live with this. This is gonna happen. There's gonna be divorce. It's in our world. It's it's in the church. And what are you gonna do about it? Well, you got to teach the truth. You got to shepherd people in the truth, and you got to equip them to know how to respond when divorce comes, mm-hmm. even if it's by no fault of their own, because that happens a lot. A spouse wants to leave. A spouse is in adultery. Whatever. What does that other person do? Do they walk around with the scarlet letter? They didn't bring that upon themselves. Mm-hmm. No doubt there was sin in their part, because there always is sin in marriage, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not saying they were perfect, yet they didn't want the divorce. I've And I've sat with people that have begged their spouses not to divorce them, mm-hmm. and they divorced them anyway. What do we do with those people? Now we just label them with a D and say, no, you're, you're, you're secondhand goods. 
yeah. can no longer serve in the church, can no longer have this, can no longer have that. And it's like, uh, you, I hope that's not your perspective, mm-hmm. right? And uh, because, again, it's not an unforgivable sin, even for people who do provoke it, right? Even for people who do embrace it and do go down that path of making that sinful choice to divorce a spouse for no biblical reason, even those people, if they are truly repentant, can be forgiven, mm-hmm. right? And then the beauty is they can be reconciled with their spouse again, right? Because that's that's what Paul is 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 clearly talking about in First Corinthians seven when he says when he says literally proving the point there is no option of divorce when he says uh, you should not separate divorce your husband or wife. He says it very clearly with strong negative language. You must never divorce your spouse, separate from them. And then he goes on, he says, and but if you do, if you choose to go down this path, you should remain unmarried. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in the context, he's talking about you should never divorce your spouse, but if you do, i.e., because of sinful reasons, not because of the exception that right. Jesus gave, mm-hmm. and and but clearly on your own. You want to do this, there's no stopping you. Paul's like, okay, if you do that, you better remain unmarried. Why? Because what Jesus said in Matthew 10, Matthew 19 comes out. If you marry, now you're not only in sin by breaking the marriage bond, which God commanded don't do, mm-hmm. now you're in adultery. Right. And so Paul's point is, Look, you're piling sin on here. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. But the other reason is because if you repent and and if you come back and you recognize, you can be reconciled back in your marriage. And that's the point. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. Well, that can happen, and that should happen. Um, And so yet if it's unable to happen because the other spouse is married— or the other spouse is not a believer, or there's reasons why you wouldn't want to be reconciled maritably, maritally with another person, even if you're recognizing your divorce was wrong. And if that's the case, and you've done all you could to be reconciled, um, then you need to be forgiven and restored and set back into life and live in a godly life. And um, so there's much that needs to be said about that. And uh, there's much encouragement that needs to be given about that, and the church needs to respond biblically and faithfully. We need to hold marriage tenaciously. We need to elevate it and explain it and protect it and uh, a fight for it. That's a good word. We need to fight for the sanctity of marriage. Yet at the same time, we need to recognize the reality of a sin-cursed world we live in, and people are being saved out of messed up lives or divorce sometimes multiple divorces have happened and all kinds of debauchery and even believers can be deceived and can fall into sin and and run into sin and and embrace these things and the church needs to know how to shepherd people through these with truth yeah so and so it go. is a huge impact because um the you know I, I was a part of a church that there were i mean i'd say if I was to see some of the couples now, I'd, yeah. I'd say 25% of the couples are still married. Yeah. That either got married in that church or um, were around and had a family and, mm-hmm. you know, kids and everything like that. It gets to the point now where I see some of the old people from that church and I'm like, I'm not even going to ask if you're, you know, how's your spouse doing? Mm-hmm. Because 
it's it's almost as if because I've done it a couple of times. Hey, how's such and such? And I get this look of I can't stand that person. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not even going to ask anymore. But it was an ongoing thing. And Sad. not just that, it was a lot of affairs that were happening, mm-hmm. um, a lot of sexual uh, sins that were happening. So mm-hmm. you're when you're saying that it just spreads like gangrene. Oh man, I've seen that in 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 person. So, and it's for me, you know, I've had to fight those thoughts. I've had to fight that thought of she is really getting on my nerves right now. Mm-hmm. But I've had to fight that thought mm-hmm. of you know what this is not for me to take that as an option. Mm-hmm. You know and. Most of the time it was me messing up anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, it. I need to just slow down and, and kind of think it through. So, yeah. Um, so, so when marriage is God centered, divorce is never an option. Absolutely. When marriage is man centered, divorce is always the option. Yeah. Right? And that's meaning in the mind. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem. Where you go. Exactly. We're looking at it and we're like, yeah. we, it's like, they're not doing this for me. They're not yeah. doing that for me. So, as a matter of fact, in a God centered marriage, those difficulties, like you rightfully said, which are often self induced, right? Mm-hmm. Because of our own sin. Mm-hmm. But the those difficulties in the end, instead of being a point for breaking the marriage in a God-centered marriage, turn out to be a point for strengthening the marriage because they bring about humility, purity, Mm -hmm. and all those things. But they also turn out to be a point for glorifying God in the marriage Mm -hmm. because true love, I was talking with a couple last night and, and marriage counseling, and I was explaining to them what true love is, right? Man must love his wife like Christ loved the church and and wives must love their husbands. And what, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we were talking about the reality of true love is true love always does its best work, always, when the other person's at their worst. Mm. That's true love. Mm-hmm. See, true love is when you, when you hate me, that's when it's going to be true. My love is going to truly manifest itself, mm-hmm. whether it's genuine or not. Yeah. And again, that's not man-centered love that's only god-given love that Mm -hmm. comes from him he loved us first john 4 he loved us or we love him because he first loved us right Mm -hmm. we don't even know how to love first john 4 says we don't know how to love but because he demonstrates he shows us that love and ultimately gifts that to us through faith and and the gospel and so so a husband and a wife learn how to love each other through those difficulties as they die to self and so yeah those difficulties are often by our own sin but they often which is what the bible teaches they become a sanctifying factor which is what marriage is really on so many levels all about it's about our own growth and godliness and christ-likeness which which always you remember maturity always comes through the conduit of misery right Mm -hmm. that's how it always works and so what's that scripture you said it and that's i first went to that it's like because uh, what you're saying is literally illustrated in Scripture. It's like while we were still sinners, yes, while we were still sinners, literally Christ yep. died for us. He, and he demonstrated this love that's it. towards us. I'm like, oh, and yep, that's true. And that's why we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We love as Christ has loved us. You know, mm-hmm. obviously imperfectly, and and uh, as uh, we'll never achieve that, but we strive for that, especially in marriage. And mm-hmm. so. So vital, so important. But but in this text in Jeremiah 3, mm-hmm. one of the issues when you talk about this, and it's a difficult, it, obviously, it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult, how shall I say it, conundrum, right? It's a, it's a theological conundrum 
dealing with this reality of of God divorcing Israel, mm-hmm. right? It's uh, again, most people don't even know it's there, and and again, others don't know how to explain it, but it's there. It's in the text, and and so I think you gotta understand what's going on from the illustration of divorce. It's helpful, but what exactly does that mean for Israel, right? What 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 does that mean? Because then people can kind of fall into the trap of replacement theology, right? Well, that's where I was going next. Yeah, I had a feeling of that because yep. that's what happens. And mm-hmm. so then you're just like, oh, all right, so Israel's done. Well, if you say that from that passage, then you don't know what's going on. Before you get into that, can, can we define terms first? Yes, we can. Can you kind of explain what replacement theology is? Yes. Because, and here, just let me get, because, all right, we just took, well, Matt just took a whole half hour to not parachute into the subject <laughs> to make sure that the entire context was there. Now, here's the thing, too. You didn't get all of it. There's more. So you need to go back and listen to the sermon. Uh, what was the date on that? 725 or something like yeah, that, you know, yeah. July 25th, 2021. You need to go back and listen to that. So once you listen to that, then you can come back and hear, you know, understand where he's coming from. But if there is this, if, if what people will look at is if that, if God divorced himself from Israel, yeah, then replacement theology is something that is in jeopardy. Yeah. Correct. Or it's, it's, it's not necessarily in jeopardy. It's in reality. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's, that's how the argument goes. Well, so, what is replacement yeah, theology? So replacement theology in a, uh, in its clearest definition, just simply means that the church has replaced Israel. Okay, that's what it means. That's hence the term replacement. So uh, essentially what it means is God rejected Israel. He completely, utterly, forever rejects Israel, and he replaces Israel as the people of God with the church. Okay, and that's kind of the tenet of replacement theology. Now, there's more just obviously that can be said and should be said, and I'm not, I don't want to misrepresent anybody who embraces that, but I'm just keeping it, I'm keeping it clear. I I do have a backup question, a follow-up question. Yeah. Because if meaning like Israel was, you know, in scripture described as God's chosen people. Yes. If, if Christ, if God divorced Israel, then that means that you're right. That means that the church is now God's chosen people. And they're called the new Israel. This is the terminology that is new Israel, the new Israel, you know, and there's Hmm. some verses people will use for that out of Galatians, the Israel of God. And there's, there are passages that, that if understood wrongly out of context, people will try to use to support that. And the key, the key in this is what they, what replacement theology is. Uh, one of the tenets of replacement theology is that all the promises, all the promises given to Israel now get fulfilled in the church. Okay. So all the promises to Israel, the land promises, the, the nation promises, Mm. all of that now gets completely pulled into the church. And now the church, but here's, what's interesting. Again, this is, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to jump you didn't ask me to explain. You didn't ask me to defend one or the other, and I'm beginning right. to do it. But mm-hmm. for clarity, what happens is here's a key word: all the literal promises to Israel get spiritually fulfilled in the church. Well, I was thinking also yeah. what we talked about last time. You yeah. know, we talked about if my people are called by my name. Yes. You know. So, so people. Uh, point. Point being, 
people then will address Israel as if it's the church. They'll even go back to the Old Testament, and some theologians even will say the church is there in the Old Testament, and will even call Israel the church. And um, and uh, you know, obviously, that's not biblically accurate. But they'll use the term ecclesia can have a broad meaning of assembly, and they'll say, see, that Israel is assembled, and but that's obviously way too theologically ambiguous to even be discussed right mm-hmm. but many people do by way of they'll they'll import it from the new testament so replacement theology embraces a hermeneutic that says you read the old testament through the lens of the new so it's called new testament priority so you read the new testament first and then you go back and you read the old testament and that's a that's kind of how they end up there it's a, again it's new and i'm not speaking anything other than what they would admit you know they that's a hermeneutic that they just naturally embrace to read the old you have to read the new right rather than i would say no you read the old to the new you read it progressively as god revealed it over time he reveals himself he reveals himself from genesis to revelation progressively and as he reveals himself progressively he gives more knowledge and so there clearly are things in the new testament that do clarify things in the old I don't deny that, but what replacement theology teaches is that things in the New Testament supersede the things in the in the old. So all those promises, all those all those clear predictions, prophecies, all that stuff has now superseded. Supersessionism is another term for replacement theology. Mm-hmm. It gets superseded now in the church, and the church totally takes over all of that. And there's levels to this. There's 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 guys that, you know, agree with this but don't agree with that. And so I'm using a general, uh, obviously broad brush of replacement theology. But what I'm saying is is verifiable, and most replacement the- theologians would not disagree with it. So I'm doing my best to represent them gently and graciously and accurately. So when you come to a passage like Jeremiah 3, they'll say, See, God divorced Israel. He's done with Israel. No longer Israel now it's the church and so um you know you got to be able to answer that or at least you know address that if you're going to be mentioning this reality of god divorcing israel so that does make sense though and and i'm just thinking through daniel was reading jeremiah uh you know close to year 70 Mm -hmm. when israel was in exile so what? God just went and you know rescued his old girlfriend or, or ex-wife to bring him back. That doesn't make sense. I mean, I can understand like you know, first of all, you got to read the context of Jeremiah three, where it's coming yeah. from. You know, him being the weeping prophet. Yeah. But to just say that God was completely done with Israel. Yeah. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, especially if you keep reading. Yeah. Remember one of the one of the key tenets to sound hermeneutics is to keep reading. Mm-hmm. Most people stop reading, right? Yeah. It's to read the v- verses and the chapters that come before. It's a, the verses. It's, it's a selfish thing. Yeah. I got I got what I wanted out of yeah. the text, so that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Either that or it's a lazy thing. Right. We all we all struggle with that. Right. So I'm going to read it. Right. I'm, I'm going to we're going to read the passage and just let the truth speak for itself because as you do, it really does clarify so much. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 3, starts with uh, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not the land be greatly polluted? All right, now let me explain what's going on here, okay? So obviously the prophet is confronting um, 
he's confronting who? He's confronting Judah. So mm -hmm. we, we this is a, a fine distinction that often gets left off. So we know we have... The split kingdoms. Yes, we gotcha. have the northern ten tribes mm -hmm. and the two southern tribes. Judah, mm -hmm. two southern tribes, ten northern tribes, Israel, right? Mm -hmm. So Judah is speaking, or excuse me, Jeremiah is speaking to Judah, but he's going to talk about Israel, okay? So you got to be able to make that distinction here mm. in a minute, and we'll walk through that. But what I don't want you to miss... And this, obviously, I didn't have time to get into all, all of this, uh, for sure. That's what the podcast is exactly, for. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Praise the Lord for the podcast, mm -hmm. or else I'd preach 12 more sermons on this, <laughs> and that would not be good. Right. But uh, this passage is going back to Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. That's what he's talking about. Uh, okay. So right. he, he's he, bringing, yeah, he's I get you. literally okay. talking Right. He's going right back and he says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man, that's literally what Deuteron mm -hmm. Deuteronomy 24 1 says, would not the land be greatly polluted? And that's what it says. Mm -hmm. it, God says, if you do this and this woman does that and then you try to take her, the land, it's going to be cursed. Right. Okay. And so why does he do this? Again, this starts to answer so many questions because Jeremiah is setting up what looks to be a completely hopeless situation for Israel. Hmm. If God divorces you, or he already did historically by this time, he's already divorced them. You'll see that in the text. How could they ever come back? How could they ever be brought back and the land not be polluted? Mm -hmm. That's what Jeremiah is doing in the text. Mm -hmm. He's setting up a, he's setting up a, um, a hopeless situation and then he's going to turn around and bring hope to it. So mm. you got to understand that as he's walking through it. Mm -hmm. Now he says, you have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have, have you not ravaged? Uh, ravished? By the waysides you have, been, you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. And basically, he's talking about all their idolatries, using spirit. He's using sexual whoredom, uh, sexual immorality, all of this wicked sin. Mm -hmm. But in the it's it's they were worshiping idols. So obviously, in the prophets, sexual immorality and idolatry go hand in hand, literally, but also figuratively. So he's speaking figuratively here what they were doing, and the lovers were the other gods they were worshiping to. And now, now is the consequence. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? And then he's quoting them. My father, you are a friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Unquote. He's quoting them. Behold, you have spoken. But you have done all the evil that you have that you could have. Now he goes into verse six, right? The Lord said to me in the days in the, the the days of King Josiah, "Have you seen what she did?" He's going to talk about um, Israel now. That faithless one, Israel, ten tribes to the north. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. This is God's speaking, right? She'll return to me. But she has done all, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. So Judah's watching all of this. Hmm. 
watching Israel sin, and they're obviously like a little sister learning from them, like a little sibling, right? right. They're watching their brother or sister sin, and they're learning. That's, that's the point he's making. She saw all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel. Here it is. I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So there, there it is in verse 8 where he talks about Israel, and I wrote her a certificate of divorce. I sent her out. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about in 722. So this is written probably around 6... 15, you know, BC. And so, um, a hundred years, 125 years before, right, is when Israel was sent to exile by the Assyrians, where God said, enough is enough. He brings the Assyrians in and they literally decimate mm-hmm. Israel, right? They just ship them to the four corners of the earth. They're done. That's the certificate of divorce that he that he he's speaking of metaphorically, figuratively here, mm-hmm. that he literally brought about was when he said, enough's enough, I'm done with you, and Assyria comes in and wipes them out and just sends them off into exile all over the planet. And that's what he's talking about. And Judah watched that. Judah saw the wrath of God borne out upon Israel, and his point is they didn't stop. They just kept their their uh, immorality in the sense of idolatry and sin. And they came back to God, but it was only in pretense. And you can read about that in Isaiah 1, where God's like, why do you offer all these sacrifices to me? They were offering sacrifices, but they had sin in their heart, sin on their hands. That's what he means by pretense. It was just like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you worship me in, in your lips, but your hearts are far, so far it's a from show. me. Yes, Israel didn't even show. They didn't do anything. They were as wicked as wicked could be. Mm-hmm. Judah was outwardly, you know, religious, but inwardly idolatrous. And mm-hmm. that's what Je- that's what God is saying here. So the certificate of divorce in the context is their exile. It is sending them away. Now, he's using the language very powerfully mm-hmm. to prove the point mm-hmm. that um, that I'm, I'm done with them, right? And so, so, again, he's setting it up. And now he's going to keep going. Um, So we finished at uh, verse 10 and verse 11. And then the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, toward the north, towards Israel, Mm -hmm. right? And say to her, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion." And I will give you shepherds after my own heart and and who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied, notice the notice, don't miss it. I will give you shepherds. He's speaking of what he'll do. 
And then notice, and when you have multiplied and have been fruitful in the land in those days, ooh, wait a minute, now he's not, he's not saying, well, he's predicting what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. You see it in the text? And when you have multiplied, now he's speaking definitively. He's not speaking hypothetically. He's speaking definitively. He's prophesying now. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it in the uh, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north and the land of and to that land, I give your fathers for a heritage. I said how, how, uh, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me father, and I would, and would not, re- not would not turn from following me. Surely, as treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will hear, heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are to the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion and the orgies on the mountains. Truly the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And he keeps going. And so what do you see here so clearly in the whole context? It starts out hopeless. How can a, how can a, a man who's divorced his wife, she comes another wife of another man, how can it not pollute the land? He just answered. If they will repent and return to me, I will bring everything back together. I will heal the land. I will heal them. I will be their God. As a matter of fact, he says, I will come down and no one will ask, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Think about the context of this day. Ark of the Covenant was the very presence of God. Right. It was the it was the chief emblem displaying the very presence of God. It was where the word of God resided. It was where the atonement of God happened, right? The Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. And he's saying in that day, they're not going to ask about the Ark of the Covenant. Why does he say that? Because I'm going to be there. I am going to dwell in Jerusalem, in your midst. And Israel and Judah will be together along with all the other nations. What in the world is he talking about? The New Testament. Jesus. No. He's talking about when the Lord returns Ah. and goes to Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom and brings it all back together. And he brings Israel and Judah together. I wasn't far ahead enough. He is speaking of what Romans 9, 10, and 11 speak speak about when he says Israel will be saved. God's plan for Israel is not done. His Mm -hmm. election of Israel is irrevocable, though he has rejected them for a time. And in all the right sense, he has divorced them, Israel, not Judah, which is a whole nother discussion. Mm -hmm. Remember, he wrote the certificate of divorce to Israel, but not to Judah, which is fascinating, which Isaiah 50 verse 1 talks about. But clearly, he has rejected them, both Israel and Judah. We know that they're both under judgment right now, but there's a time coming when they won't be. And this is what the prophets and obviously the book of Revelation and many other uh, passages speak so clearly of in the future return of Christ and the reconciliation of the kingdom of God in Israel 
and all that will happen uh, when Christ returns the second time and sets up his millennial kingdom. That's what's going on. Hmm. Yeah. That that's so uh, what we that's just good. so what we just did is what you asked me about before. We got into some end time stuff. Look at that. Yeah, we're all, we're all the way we're all the way in Revelation nineteen and the setting up of the of the millennial kingdom. That's what this is. I'm not going to ask any questions towards that. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna be patient and I'm gonna wait. But even though I have plenty of questions. About but do you that. see the flow right where it starts yeah, out in that? It makes and, so he, much sense. and he did divorce them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, metaphorically speaking, right? I mean, he didn't give them a paper, <clears throat> right? He's speaking metaphorically in the theological sense of their re- he rejected them he sent them off by the assyrians um and so but the 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 power of the image of divorce cannot be removed right that's the part of guys that that aren't replacement theologians sometimes will minimize these things and make and and they're so quick to say yeah God divorced Israel, but, you know, and then they jump into the other thing and they minimize the fact that God, God has judged his people. Mm -hmm. And in all the right way, in all the right sense, they are still under judgment. And this is where the church in our day and age often misses that. Israel Mm -hmm. is still under the judgment of God. They, they hate God as a nation, right? They they want nothing to do with God. Mm -hmm. No different than anybody else in the sense of the true Yahweh, the true Trinitarian God, the the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They want nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. And so um, so while we love, you know, uh, all people and no different Israel, but we have to understand them clearly that um, it is not until they repent, as the text says, right? Mm-hmm. How many times in this text, it's, it's, it's awesome to study it, how many times repentance is brought up in this text, mm-hmm. that all they needed to do was repent. If they repent, and notice, you can see in this text very clearly what repentance looks like. He lines it out. Repent by saying you did this. Repent by saying you did that. Like, it's very specific. He even calls them out for the specific sins that they had done, because that's what repentance is. It's not generalized confession. It's specific brokenness over your specific sins against one person, God Almighty. And he points that out, and he says, if you do that, I will return to you, and you will be my people again, and I will bless you. Well, they're, they have not done that as a nation. Individual Jews have done that, right? But not as a nation. The people of Israel, the tribes have not done that. But uh, Zechariah chapter 12 <laughs> demonstrates very clearly when that day of repentance comes, and that's when it all breaks loose in the nation, and everything starts to change, and Christ himself is coming through the clouds, and he lands right there in Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom. Why? Because those people have repented. And what happens then? The entire world changes. The entire landscape of the world changes. All the other nations, which you could see it in the text, he brings it up, become what? extremely blessed the entire right now all the nations are what at each other's throats Mm -hmm. all out to kill one another avenge one another steal from one another while they all smile at each other Mm -hmm. but in that day every single nation on the planet will be blessed for this reason because israel now is back again and all this is is the abrahamic covenant of of Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 21. These 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 promises where God says that I will bless you and you will be a blessing to who? To all the nations. Now obviously that happens through Christ, 
cosmically because the Redeemer comes out of mm-hmm. Israel, right? Right, right? But what about the literal blessings that Abraham was told that that would come, the land and everything else, and the blessing upon the nations, not just spiritually, salvifically, but even physically, literally? The Bible speaks of this so often. When does that happen? When Israel repents. That's why Israel, from the beginning, has always been cataclysmic in national geopolitical arena. As Israel goes, so goes the world, right? Mm Because this is God's plan. Well, Israel has gone off the map on so many levels, right? So the world. But when Israel comes back by the sovereign grace of God and they repent, that's what sets into motion the true reformation of the entire world because that was God's plan from the beginning through Abraham and brought out. And yes, there's a salvific side to that through which Christ is that. He is the true Israel in the sense of he he came and he's bringing that salvifically, no doubt about it. But what about physically? There's a physical kingdom, not just a spiritual kingdom, without question. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when the apostles go to Christ and they say, is now the time you're going to set up the kingdom of God mm-hmm. to Israel? Mm-hmm. They didn't just say kingdom of God nebulous. He says to Israel. Jesus, the master teacher, who has spent 40 days teaching the, the disciples, literally it says, about the kingdom of God. So they understood he's talking about Israel, mm-hmm. right? And they said, is now the time, everything you've been teaching us for the last 40 days is now the time that's going to happen. And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the time or the seasons. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't say, you know what, guys, you don't get it. You, you, you've missed it. He said that many times before to them. He told them, oh, slow of heart. How long must I be with you? You guys are blinded. You don't get it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, guys, I'm talking spiritually here. I'm not talking about a literal physical kingdom because that's what replacement theologians will say. Oh, no, no, they, they missed it. Jesus is all about the spiritual kingdom in the heart of man. He's never, he's not talking about a physical kingdom. Well, it seems to me what I just read here is all kinds of literal physical things. Mm-hmm. Land and blessing and Jerusalem and abiding and all the bringing you from the north and all over the place. Seems like there's a lot of physical, uh, geographical language being used here. So it is in Acts 1.6. Jesus never corrected them. He only, cor- he only corrected them in this. I'm not going to tell you the time when it's when the literal kingdom's going to come, but it's for you to go out now and be my witnesses. Hmm. Sorry. I, no, I want to ask so many other questions about the end times, but I'm going to leave that alone. And uh, so, do you think we put that 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 horse to rest there with explaining that? <laughs> Well, that, I probably went longer. That's my point. I probably said more than I should, but you got me excited. Yeah, that that horse is uh, that that horse still got some years to ride. So <laughs> more more questions to ask about it. But, but understanding the divorce of Israel, yeah, and, yeah, 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 that 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 was extremely helpful. Um, <clears throat> here, okay. So I will say, I will ask this. So um, when it comes down to the divorce you talked about the 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 tearing yes the tearing of 
the two people you yes. know from each other yes and you you know earlier you mentioned let no man i'm, I'm i got the the king james version in my yeah. head that no man tear asunder yes you know yes. that you, you talked about that tearing yes is that tearing uh you know, obviously, it's there's some spiritual. I'm sorry, physical significance to that. Yes, because of the coming together. Yes. Um, but what implications would be there as far as the, uh, like how God sees it and why it makes you know divorce so bad? Yeah. So uh, again, again, this is a this is a um, a de- you know a controversial statement I'm going to make that not everybody would agree with obviously but you, you never make controversial yeah, statements yeah but again there is division even in among good men on this but when you when I study scripture I have a hard time so uh, you know you take a guy John Piper for instance he, mm-hmm. he's a pretty famous guy John Piper believes that there is no divorce like like divorce is totally there is no exception clause he interprets that kind of, like I said, a whole nother avenue, and, and which, again, it's hard to do, but he does it. And uh, so there's guys that believe that the marriage covenant can never be broken. They believe mm-hmm. it's completely permanent for all time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, so they believe that, and, and again, there's ways in which they try to prove it. I don't believe that. But they believe that, and therefore they say um, the reality of adultery comes in because you are still married in God's eyes. That's the, it's very famous. You've heard this probably in churches. Divorce is wrong because in God's eyes you're still married. That's the common phrase that's used by pastors and theologians and people. And so the reason why adultery gets brought into like Matthew 19 and some of these other texts is because in God's eyes— you're still married, and therefore, when you marry another person, you're in adultery. And, you know, I understand the desire, I understand the uh, perspective of wanting to hold marriage so high that that's kind of, it's a protection, right? They're wanting to hold the marriage covenant where it should be. I think I have as high a view of marriage as anybody else, Mm -hmm. and yet I believe that divorce legitimately breaks the marriage bond. Mm-hmm. And as I believe that's that's the point. That's why God hates it so much. And that's not the only reason, but because it literally, as the warning says, it tears it apart. Mm-hmm. It's 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 almost metaphorically as if you're taking the marriage certificate, right? Which obviously isn't the point, but it's as if you're taking that marriage certificate, which in a covenant in that day was a signed contract, so to speak, right? And it's like you're tearing it apart when you divorce and God hates that right because that covenant was not simply made person to person this is the side that people forget even in in unbelieving marriages that covenant is made between that those persons and God mm-hmm. because he's the one who made marriage mm-hmm. marriage is not a social construct mm-hmm. marriage is not an invention of man marriage is an institution given by God for all people so even unbelievers still come under the authority and the responsibility of God when they enter into marriage, whether they know it or not, Mm -hmm. right? It's because God's the one who made it, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like they have the responsibility to answer to God because God made them, whether they know it or not. And most of them don't in the sense of they they rebel against it, they suppress the truth, and so they don't answer to God. But they're going to have to answer to God for how they treated 
uh, one another and how they acted because God created them and he created them to worship him, not themselves. Same thing in marriage. He created marriage. And if you enter into it, you do it my way or else it's sin. And so God takes it very serious. So the marriage covenant um, is broken uh, when divorce happens. That's part of what's so disastrous about divorce. But <clears throat> but God has, has allowed multiple situations by which divorce can happen, and it's permissible. And he says, okay, if divorce happens for that, sexual immorality, abandonment, those things, if it happens for that, okay, that's permissible, right? But if it happens for anything else, that's not permissible. Even though you're divorced, you are still, in his eyes, your divorce isn't it should have never happened. This divorce, it could happen. This divorce should have never happened, even though it happened. So he doesn't deny that the divorce happened. It's not like he's like got his eyes closed and go, yeah, you think you're divorced, but you're really still married. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? That doesn't even make sense. Right. He says, no, you're divorced, but it should have never happened. It was wrong. Mm-hmm. In his eyes, it's wrong. In his plan, it's wrong. And he brings that out. But the other reality, he says, no, that's not wrong. That's allowed. Now, What's interesting in the language, why, why do I come to this position that the divorce is actually a real divorce and the second marriage is a real marriage? Because that's what the Bible says, right? You go to Deuteronomy 24, it literally says, if a man divorces his wife and that wife becomes the, or that, that woman becomes the wife of another man, then that, and that man hates her, meaning he wants to put her out on divorce again, because again, which is all ungodly wasn't God's design but that's the way they were doing it and then the first husband wants to take her back he can't that's the point that Deuteronomy 24 is making and so and so the reality is it calls her the wife of another man well it, that div- div- first divorce was never biblical so it the text should call her the first man's wife kind of like the text makes very clear makes very clear when it talks about Bathsheba mm-hmm. right it always calls her what Uriah's Her's wife, wife. Yep. so mm-hmm. the bible does that right mm-hmm. so when you see this in multiple places even in Paul right when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, you should never divorce your spouse but if you do you should remain unmarried Paul doesn't say you should never divorce your spouse but if you do you're still married to them in the eyes of God that's how most people see it. Paul mm-hmm. says, no, you remain unmarried, meaning mm-hmm. you're, the marriage bond is broke. You're not married anymore mm-hmm. because the minute you say you're still married in the eyes of God, I'm telling you, the ethical dilemma that you set before people becomes so confusing and so convoluted because now you have people who are now confused. Oh, okay, so if I'm still married in the eyes of God, I'm divorced, but now I can go back to my wife and still sleep with her because technically I'm still married. married. And this happens all the time. And then people get their their theological drawers all tied up in a knot. And Mm -hmm. it's all this stuff because of the language we use is Mm is not right. And so I think we have to speak. We have to speak clearly about these things. But it makes sense that people would have that view because that is a very selfish view of it. You're looking for what you can get out of Scripture versus what God says and seeking that out. Yeah, and so theologically, I understand the dilemma, and I understand what they're saying. I just don't think it's biblically biblically accurate. Yeah, Yeah. cool. I I love that. I'm going to switch gears just for a second. <coughs> and Go for it. the reason why I want to switch gears for a second is 
one, I want to uh, end with the gospel. Um, and then I have a question that uh, came through uh, <laughs> from a, uh, a, a, a wonderful source. <laughs> and uh, I answered the question. Uh, well, I, I, f- I found the question, and I just want to make sure that my question, my answer was, was the correct answer. What does the Bible say? That's the correct answer. Well, yeah. Um, I want to make sure that my understanding answer? Did of, you find your answer in the Bible? There you go. Yeah, I did find my answer in the Bible. Okay. <laughs> I'm studying Second uh, Timothy. Somebody sent this, emailed this question to you? <clears throat> Texted to me. Through the podcast or just to you personally? To me personally. Okay. Yeah. Which uh, this person is allowed to. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, Tell Beverly I said hi. Yeah, I will. <laughs> so I'm still... <laughs> Here's the question. Sorry. I'm studying uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. The last sentence states, avoid such people. Mm. What should be our understanding of that statement with the command to evangelize and spread the gospel? Now, before you answer, (laughs) this was my answer, and I haven't given this answer yet. I just said, hey, I know the answer to this question, um, but... I want to make sure that I am uh, going about it correctly. So, first of all, the context of this is Timothy, Paul writing a letter to Timothy. Mm -hmm. And in the first letter and in the second letter, Paul is uh, exhorting Peter, I'm sorry, Timothy, Mm -hmm. to be um, a a, basically a good soldier, not Mm -hmm. getting involved in civilian affairs, Mm -hmm. fighting the good fight of faith. Uh, commanding him to not listen to irreverent babble and all these things. That irreverent babble would be from the false teachers mm-hmm. that were uh, very prevalent in the church that he was placed in the church of Ephesus. Correct? Am I good so far? Yep. Okay. Now, when he's when um, when Paul says uh, in verse five, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. He isn't talking about people that are uh, unsaved. Um, he's not talking about the ungodly. He's actually talking about avoiding the false teachers and avoiding what they are teaching, mm-hmm. but instead to preach the word, to be uh, ready to, um, to, to, to combat those, those, that false teaching. Mm-hmm. Is that right? You're, you're, you're on a good path. Is that okay. your answer? That was my answer, yes. Yeah, so, uh, yes, I would say your answer is sound and, and good. I would take it even maybe a little bit further, but, yeah, you're on, you're, on the right, you're on the right page. When you, you know, the context, like you said, about Timothy and all that's going on, but Timothy specifically, Paul's telling him, this is what it's going to be like in the last days, mm-hmm. right? Now, obviously, we're in the last days because last days obviously happened when Christ ascended. That was the beginning of the last days, and so, of course, those days are escalating as we know but when you read this passage which i have quite a bit lately because i i just am shall i say um quite disturbed Mm -hmm. by what i'm seeing in our culture and in our world and i read this passage and it's literally like a perfect in the sense of a crystal clear description of our world yep yep 200 percent to a t Mm mm-hmm and so when you read this passage, it's, it's, it's very interesting. However, um, this passage clearly defines the world. But the reality of that is, which is interesting, the world's always been like this. Hmm. 
go all the way back to Genesis, right? Mm-hmm. This is flood. You go all the way back to, you know, uh, the prophets, you know. You can go all the way back to Nehemiah at the end. Uh, Nehemiah, historically, is the end of the Old Testament, right? Malachi, last book. Uh, but Second Chronicles and Nehemiah, chronologically, really are the last books. And he, how does it end? Nehemiah, he's pulling people's hair out. He's he's in fist fights because the people are so wicked. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is the way it's always been. You know, Romans chapter one, right? Wrath of God against ungodliness of man. I mean, so there's a, yes, you could look at this and say, mm-hmm, yeah, it's a description of the time of the way it will be in last days. Well, it's always been this way, which is interesting. But I think more specifically, you're right. He's talking about false teachers. Mm -hmm. Most specifically, he's talking about false teachers in the church. But I think even more specifically, he's talking about people in the church. Hmm. Hence why he says, avoid them. Well, keep reading the verse six. It says, for among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning. So here you go, right? Mm -hmm. So... And, and again, this opened my eyes big time, big time when I understood this and didn't see it just generally as a description of the world, because that's how most people see it. Mm-hmm. Hence, you know, whoever Beverly sent that question and, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're asking because they're reading it as if it's just world. Right. It's like, no, no, I don't think that's, I mean, that's true. The world is this, mm-hmm. but that's not who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He's talking about people who have an appearance or a claim to be a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. He's talking about people who are claiming to be one thing, but they're not. And the proof of that obviously is quite stark um, when he says right there, verse five, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you the world never has the appearance of godliness, mm-hmm. and they and they never even put on that air. Like, they don't even try to pretend to be godly, if you know what godly means, mm-hmm. right? They're not even pretending that. Mm, yeah, but false Christians do all the time. Mm-hmm. They do all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, and so when you understand it in that sense, and then you see the strong command avoid such people well that command is actually given throughout the scriptures new testament multiple mm-hmm. times to avoid people i mean you can go over second uh first corinthians chapter what is it, chapter six no chapter five when it talks about the people who call themselves christian but are sexually Im- Im- immoral mm-hmm. paul says don't have anything to do with them don't even eat with them mm-hmm. stay away from them mm-hmm. you can go to titus chapter 3 where uh, this actually comes up multiple times in titus but it, uh, in titus chapter 3 it says the same exact thing warn them once meaning these are people in the church people who claim to be christians warn them once warn them twice have nothing to do with them mm-hmm. stay away from them uh, in titus he says they are deceived and uh, ignorant people Mm-hmm. Think about the strong language there. And then if you take this same uh, passage, exactly what you pointed out, notice it says, for among them. Mm-hmm. Who's the them? People it's, just described before. Exactly. Now there's going to be certain people among them mm-hmm. are those who creep into households and carry away weak-willed women, right? These mm-hmm. are the false teachers, mm-hmm. very clearly. Now if you go over to uh, Titus chapter 1, verse, uh, what is it, verse 10 to 15, 
literally repeats almost verbatim this mm-hmm. reality about what? False teachers who have crept into homes and have upset whole families mm-hmm. teaching what they should not teach, and Titus is there to correct them. Mm-hmm. And it, it even says what? They have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Mm-hmm. So you can almost see the same exact language used in that passage. And so, yeah, that's who he's... That's who he's um, uh, talking about. There it is. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's strong language. Mm. Mm. Strong language. So, yeah, so it's not, he's not, he's saying exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Paul's like, I'm not telling you to stay out of the world, like stay away from all immoral people, because if you ha- if you did that, you'd have to literally remove yourself from the world. That's what Paul says. But he says, I'm telling you, stay away from immoral people that claim to be Christians, because mm-hmm. they will infect you. That's his point. They will infect you like gangrene mm-hmm. and have nothing to do with them. They're hypocrites. They're liars. They're deceivers. And you will get sucked into their trap. Mm. And so, yeah, that's the language. And obviously, you know, we live in a modern church that doesn't believe in that because the point of that is no church discipline because mm. that's what church discipline is, right? It's calling people out when they begin to demonstrate that so that they don't become that, trying to trying to rescue them, right? As he said earlier in chapter 2 of Second Timothy, right? They've become enslaved into the snare of Satan and doing his bidding. But the man of God gently, graciously, and compassionately confronts those who contradict, meaning who live a life that contradicts the gospel. He confronts those in hopes that God will grant them repentance and save them from the snare of the devil. And so, yeah, that's what we do. But sooner or later, you got to avoid them. You got to mm-hmm. stay away from them because they will bring you down mm-hmm. and they will infect the body. And by way of church discipline, eventually, if they will not repent, you got to put them out, mm-hmm. right? Because they will infect the body, and and uh, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's you're you're right you're right there with your answer, and and it's interesting that what we just talked about is what then Timothy has to deal with, because these are the same people, right? So notice in my Bible, I drew a line. From, it, from verse 2 of chapter 3 where it says, for people will be, I drew, I circled that and drew a line over to 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, for it says, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. I believe the same people that he's talking about in 2 Timothy 4, 3 are the same people he just described in 2 Timothy 3, mm-hmm. 3, 2, in the last days. Mm-hmm. That's why he says that here because... He turns around now and he tells Timothy, yeah, these are the people that are not going to endure sound doctrine, Timothy, but don't worry about them. You just preach the word. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was right. You were you were, <laughs> you were, were right there, brother. Well, what I did was uh, instead of just uh, parachuting into the, to the text, uh, I took, you know, some time to read through the entire book of 2 Timothy Yep. And then went back and read First Timothy. Um, Good but job. when I did that, it gave me the perspective. And in the uh, men's Bible study, obviously, we have been <laughs> parked, <laughs> literally parked in First and Second Timothy. Anchored. Yeah, anchored. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like, all right. Hopefully I not already, sinking. 
No, not not at all. So I was like, okay, I know the context. It, you know, you, you say it over and over and over again. Amen. When we talk about it, uh, you know, when we have Bible study, so it's like, okay, I am confident of the context that it is false false teachers. Now, as I look at it, how are they explained in this? So I was like, okay, well, there you go. So yeah, all right. Well, Good with job. that being the case. Uh, as we end, can you uh, give us uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, so the gospel always and ultimately not only begins with God, but is ultimately about God. Because mm-hmm. God created humanity. He created everything, right? In the beginning, God, right? Everything's about him. It's uh, Everything's from him, for him, and to him. So the gospel always begins with God. It always begins in Genesis. There is a God. He made you. You were created. You have life. You have breath. You have clothes. You have food. Everything you have by way of your material possessions, your ability, your skill, your health, your life comes from God. He made every single human being. I think it says in, what is it, Isaiah 43? He made everybody for his glory, to worship him, to honor him, to serve him. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 makes really clear. And so it all begins with God. He is the great creator. He is the sovereign uh, author of, of all that we have and all that we are in, in our world. And he created us to worship him, but he's a holy God, which means we don't get to make up our own way of worship. We have to worship him as he has revealed himself and as he has demanded. And he has made it clear that we are commanded to worship him. And yet man rebels against that. Man wants nothing to do with God. Man wants nothing to do with worshiping God. Man will worship God, but he wants to do it in his own way. Mm -hmm. He'll make up his own image that's called idolatry, or he'll turn around and do what most of us, all of us do in some form or fashion, and he'll reject worshiping God and will worship the God of ourselves. That's called sin. Anytime we do not obey God and live for God, whether that's by omission or commission, Mm -hmm. that is sin. Anytime we fail to do what God has called us to do, to live up to what God has called us to do, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, bringing God the glory he deserves and living in a way that glorifies him, we all fall short because of sin. Mm -hmm. And that's a massive problem. God created us for his glory. We have rejected it for our own glory. That's sin. And God uh, is emphatic. God is just. God is right. And he says, all sinners must be judged. Matter of fact, in Ezekiel 18, it says, all sinners must die. Right? Paul says it in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Paul says in in, uh, Ephesians 2.1, that we were all born dead in our transgressions and sins. Paul goes on to prove it. What? We're born dead, and this is how you know it, because you follow the world, you follow Satan, and you follow your own heart, Mm -hmm. rather than, back to Genesis 1, following God. Mm -hmm. So we've all sinned, and now we are all under not the the, uh, blessing of God's grace, but the guarantee of his wrath. That's the judgment we all deserve. And some people think, well, that's really harsh. But see, we don't understand how how wicked sin is, and we don't understand how holy God is. Mm -hmm. God is the, the one and only God. Therefore, any sin against him, here, this is an important word, is cosmic. It is cosmic in its nature. 
because you have sinned against the cosmic God of all the earth. Mm -hmm. It is cosmic treason, Mm -hmm. and therefore it not only deserves judgment, but it deserves cosmic judgment, Mm -hmm. eternal judgment. The other side to that is we never stop sinning, and Mm. therefore the judgment of God Mm. never stops coming, Mm. even in hell itself. So, So anybody that says, well, that's too harsh, no, they don't know how holy and righteous and awesome God is and how wicked and evil and vile sin is. But praise the Lord, if God left us there in that state of judgment, which Ephesians 2, 3 says, says very clearly, we are children of wrath. All of mankind is, says it so clearly right there, every single person. And, and you know what? If Ephesians 2, 3 stopped right there and there was nothing else, God would be right to leave us in that state of judgment hmm. to where we would be condemned to hell forever under his wrath. That's how just he is, and that's how right that would be, because we are that sinful. But God is also merciful, gracious, loving, and kind. And he does what no one else would have done. He makes a way. He provides judgment on his son. He brings Christ to earth to live the life we never lived, which he demands, right? Perfection. And then he sends his son not only to live the perfect life that we need to live to be in his presence, but then he sends his son to die the perfect death, which serves as his judgment against all sin. Even though his son never sinned, he was holy in all ways, second member of the Trinity, God himself in the flesh, he never sinned, yet he bore our sin in his body on the tree. He became our judgment. He became our sin bearer. He became the judgment of God was laid upon him. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He that knew no sin became, right, sin, became for sin for us, that mm-hmm. we might become the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. So Christ becomes the sin bearer. And so he not only died, lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, but he rose from the grave three days later, which he promised he would, which God promised he would Mm -hmm. and it all proves that christ is who he claimed to be and can do what he promised he can do which is what save every single person from the wrath of god that will repent and trust in him so this was god's plan from the beginning to provide a sacrifice in his son that would take away our punishment take away our sin if we would only turn away from ourselves in repentance and trust in christ alone God himself promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from what? From his coming judgment. Mm. And if we do that, we will be saved. Amen. Thank you all for listening to the Truth Talks podcast, tuning in. Uh, We would love to hear from you. You can uh, dial us at 612-88-TRUTH. You can also email us at the truth talks podcast at gmail.com. Any questions that you would have. And uh, please don't do like my wife and text me. <laughs> Just send me an email. Thank you all for tuning in. I got that right. Then, yeah, didn't I? you did. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning in. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Take care.